got on the phone and my first college job was at Santa Barbara City College out in California. Like you have to recruit guys that love to hit if you want to rake. I think the number one thing that team coaches can do to improve the value of that limited time is to evaluate and reevaluate. To provide and make hitters better through one movement training, two mentality, and three strength and conditioning. I mean, that's the reality. If you want to be a baller, you have got to put in some serious work and sacrifice. What's their baseline bat speed? What kind of attack angle they have on average? And what is their time to contact? Fellas, fellas, fellas. Welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host, Joey Cunha. And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at the Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we are here to be a bridge from where you are to where you're going. We'd like to welcome back our veteran listeners. We're happy to grow with you again. We'd also like to welcome our first-time listeners, the rookies. Don't worry, every vet was once a rookie. On this episode, we sit down with Jordan Stoffer from Rounding Third Baseball Performance. Jordan was a former Division I hitting coach. He's currently certified in strength and conditioning. He's also certified as a biomechanics specialist. He's certified in a whole bunch of things. This man is, is also was a, a hitting coach for the junior college, has a bachelor's degrees in human performance and nutrition, and also has is certified in nutrition for sports performance. Pull up a seat, grab your notepad. Here's Jordan Stoffer. Welcome back to the Farm System. We're here with Jordan Stoffer from Rounding Third Baseball Performance. Jordan, we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to sit down and chat with us here at the Farm System. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, you know, a big reason we want to have you on, Jordan, is, you know, there's so much information that you can provide to everybody because of multiple things that have happened in your life. You know, you've been a D1 hitting coach and now you're in the private sector and there's so much information and different ways of doing things from one side to another. And um, you just, I've been following you on Twitter for a little while. I mean, you are, you know, always talking and I know how much knowledge you have into the game and how obsessed you are just like me and Bo. And uh, we just think that there's a lot of value we can steal from you. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I I enjoy the fact that I've like kind of worn a couple different hats and can put that team filter on everything I do. Um, I just, you know, I want to make sure I give guys that reality of like, we can actually apply this in a game setting and a team setting. And I know coaches that are listening, they always want to, you know, how do we apply some of these private sector things and actually make it a reality inside of our two and a half hour practice every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we kind of jump into some of that stuff, Jordan, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your journey through the game of baseball? Absolutely. Um, I went to Rocky Mountain High School in Fort Collins, Colorado, played under Scott Bullock, who's an awesome coach. Uh, I think he's won six state championships in the last 11 years. And it was just an awesome experience. Um, I was able to play at Metro State University after that. Um, I think Metro shaped me in a lot of different ways. I had three coaches while I was there. Uh, so that really helped me shape some ideals, see the good versus the bad, 
Um, and I essentially went to college with the mindset, like, I'm going to do a degree that's going to help me be better at baseball. And so that was human performance. That was kinesiology and nutrition. So I dove into that. I decided I want to take control of my own career. I had a huge craving for information. I was kind of always the annoying guy who was wanted to know the why to everything. Was able to set a few home run records, did really well there. I was a good player overall, earned a gold glove. Um, you know, and I realized, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean I know how to coach. It just, I understood what it took for me to, to get what I needed out of it. So it really fueled my interest in teaching and coaching. I had to screw up and learn and, and division two, the resources are few and there was no strength coach. So, um, it actually provided me a really awesome experience to take true ownership of my career because we had so many coaches. There was no, there really was no philosophy. It was my philosophy. And so pretty, pretty cool there. Um, I went, played indie ball afterwards, just realized I wasn't going to be a big leaguer and was tired of sharing beds and sleeping on buses through the night. So I kind of, uh, that was pretty eye opening and reality set in. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do. And I'd always had this dream of being a coach in some fashion. And I always had the strength and conditioning mindset to hitting and I knew I was going to apply it somehow. Uh, but I wasn't sure how. So Coach Bullock at Rocky Mountain High School, he gave me an opportunity to come back and coach high school baseball. Awesome experience. Got me more excited about coaching. Realized all the work that goes into it. Um, that's when I became a certified strength coach. And, yeah, immediately I knew I wanted to get into college baseball after I went to, uh, like, a coaching seminar in Denver. Um, and Ed Service was there, and I was blown away by his presentation. Uh, Ed Service, as you know, is that Creighton and really good infield guy and just had a team of really good coaches at the time and so I was just really inspired by that and so I got on the phone and my first college job was at Santa Barbara City College out in California uh, with Jeff Walker and Justin Aspergan and just awesome coaches learned a ton they challenged me they knew so much um, and I wanted to keep up with them we ended up winning the Western States North Conference that year and that's when I made the move to Division One University of Northern Colorado uh, with Carly Wasaki, uh, Kai Correa, as you know, with the Friday Fielders hashtag if you're on Twitter. Um, Kai's an awesome worker, an awesome infield guy. Uh, we shared an office together and, and uh, kind of shared our passion for each of our skill sets. And uh, R.D. Spees, really great pitching coach now at Arkansas State, and was able to put some paint on the canvas and actually try – some new things and some things I wanted to do. And they gave me complete freedom with hitting and just a, such a cool experience to actually get to apply what I had envisioned and what I dreamed of. So um, I uh, left that job to start and open up my facility. I'd been doing rounding third as a business through college to make extra money and, and doing lessons and stuff like that. But I always wanted to create a little different culture. And that's when I opened up the doors of rounding third and got the opportunity to do that. And I've been doing that since and uh, love every day of it. Man. Yeah. That's so awesome. I mean, again, the, the life, everybody's journey is different and I love hearing how everybody, you know, goes through that process. And um, I think you kind of walked into where Amiibo wanted to take is, you know, since you've been on that private side, you've also been um, more on the school, the school side or not as an instructor, but more as a coach. Um, could you dive into the differences from that private facility setting over to the coaching facility? And then also after that, kind of dive into the onboarding process and things that you go through the routine over at rounding third. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think the biggest transition from the team setting, I'll answer that question first. Um, I think time constraints are present everywhere. And I really felt that pressure of time constraint when I went to division one, when it's really strict, you have two and a half countable hours. Um, but I think just the quality of time I have now with guys is so much better. I mean, it's just mind blowing what you get from that individual time and from that small group setting time. And I have every tool I want. So I have everything kind of like configured in a really, really tight manner and, and it, everything's close by. And it's amazing what you get done when your space and your organization is, uh, is really planned well. I think in college baseball, you're relying on guys showing up early and getting in extra work. So you got to recruit those guys. Like you have to recruit guys that love to hit if you want to rake. Um, and so uh, if you don't have that, if you're really talking guys in, you're really kicking them in the butt to get in the cage, that's kind of a hard scenario sometimes. And um, I, I felt like I was really lucky at Santa Barbara City and UNC. Like I had guys who, you know, I programmed hitting for them. They like, they wanted to know, like, give me information. And, and they did stuff and they, they went in early and stayed after. And, and uh, it was kind of cool. I was able to like watch them from my office because <laughs> I wasn't allowed to be down there, but I kind of like, I could kind of see from afar what they were doing. And, and uh, so kind of interesting thing there, but uh, I totally think differently now that I've had the experience of that constrained practice window. And now that I do a lot of team training, I'll come in and I'll run hitting practice for a couple hours, or I'll just come in as like a guest speaker with some teams. Um, and I think the bottom line is if you plan really well, you make competition out of everything, you record basic data, you get a ton out of a week of hitting only 45 minutes a day. Because so that's essentially what you probably have because you got to balance out defense and base running and all the other components that uh, that is required to be a good team. Um, and that info just helps, you know, it just helps you coach in the long term. Uh, it really helps you learn each of your players' tendency. So I think that private sector, I was talking about this with Kainoa Correa a few years ago, and I think private sector coaches lose credibility sometimes uh, with high school and college coaches because there's that lack of reality. So um, I think applying some private sector techniques in a team setting, um, I think there's, I think there needs to be a filter for that a little bit. And, you know, I, I always kind of think, how would I make this work if I were coaching again in the college setting? And, and uh, yeah, I think that helps me relate a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, a big thing that you talked about in there as well is I think there needs to be a blend of the private sector and the coaching. I mean, I think for a long time it's been separated. Guys are pointing at each other. Oh, well, you know, he can do that because it sounds good to individualize because he's got an hour lesson set apart with this guy. And, you know, if I and obviously you being from the opposite side, I think there's a great I don't think anybody's wrong or, you know, everybody's just working with what they got. Um, you know, exactly. if you got more time, you use more time. If you got limited time, it makes you more creative and you, it forces you to be more creative. It's kind of like a mental constraint, uh, to figure out how you do these things. And, you know, obviously the more constraints you have, the, the more talent, you know, the more talented guys are going to show when that comes to coaching. Uh, could you dive into now too, with rounding third, that, or, that onboarding and maybe the assessment process or what, what do you, I don't even, I'm not even sure. What do you guys go through at rounding third when you first get an athlete? Well, I'll say one more thing on the team setting crossover is I think the number one thing that team coaches can do to improve the value of that limited time is to evaluate and reevaluate. So spend time assessing and it costs you very little in terms of practice time and budget. Um, and 
you know, you have to know where you're at to know where you're going. So I think that's kind of what I think about with where I would go um, in terms of, you know, doing things better um, if I, if I could go back a few years from now. So, but yeah, so in terms of rounding third, um, I guess I always felt there was that disconnect between hitters and pitchers and the way they're coached. And that was my initial like that was my initial reason I really wanted to get in the private sector is why is why is pitching so different from hitting and why are they you know or or even golf like why are they so new age like why is baseball so um, against technology or information There's got to be a happy medium. Um, C.J. Gilman from Air Force like I love the way he says there's probably something in the middle there's got to be a happy medium for all this stuff there, there is no and eugene bleaker says the same thing is there everybody's right like we we got to find a balance in the middle so um i think i think the bottom line thing i i do with rounding third baseball is i take a comprehensive approach to training athletes using as much big picture knowledge as i can to provide and make hitters better through one movement training two mentality and three strength and conditioning. So we want to create that foundation of speed and adjustability and then add variability and game speed pressure to that. So my process always begins with a comprehensive eval or evaluation. Um, and that includes video analysis. I use a Rapsodo hitting machine, a high speed camera, and we get metrics from that and I record all those uh, blast sensor metrics. We do a functional movement screening. Um, I screen the shoulders and hips, the thoracic spine, and then we do basic strength and conditioning testing. And we try to do that uh, like the first one or two times we meet. And there's not a ton of me talking <laughs> in that time. It's more of like, hey, what do we have right here? What can we get? Can we like really build an awesome roadmap um, based off what we just saw? So we take time in the next you know session to break down all the details um explaining all the complicated elements of hitting the biomechanics um i think one thought that i have uh that that i think team coaches have kind of have to be disconnected from is there has to be a time when good athletes get into detail so i believe good athletes understand more once they've seen a ton of information uh, it's like it allows them to start choosing from the buffet, so to speak. So I just think that's a huge component of it. So the the next component to rounding third is I program everything. Um, after we've had this interaction and getting to talk and interact with players and, and get a feel for what their past experience is, I program hitting, fitness, and nutrition for everyone who walks in the door just so they're empowered with information because – if you see me three days a week, you still probably have two or three more days of work to do. I mean, that's the reality. If you want to be a baller, like you, you've got to put in some serious work and sacrifice. And I think for some guys, it's a reality check. And not everybody's on that train. Um, but I would say most of my guys are. And it's super fun um, getting to be around guys like that. So um see great results from guys in terms of muscle mass gain, movement improvement, sequencing improvement, speed. Um, it's just been a rewarding, awesome experience. Um, we even have like a, a little culture going on. We call it the hack shack. I have a pretty small place. Um, and so there's like junior high guys, there's pro guys, and they're working in the same space and their hours kind of cross over each other. So some guys are lifting. Like we had Logan Moore in there. He's a triple A guy with the Phillies. He's lifting weights. He's doing like a 160 pound one legged 
split squat, you know. Um, and then I got younger guys like, whoa, who is that? So uh, it's just really cool. Some guys are in the cage hitting. Some guys are at station. Some guys are doing finer movements. And um, I post all the metrics on a whiteboard. And now guys from different areas and different schools are competing against each other, becoming friends. So I love love every minute of it. It's awesome. No, I was just gonna I was just gonna pull from because you just said you just talked about um, you know, all the things that you do over in the private sector. I was gonna call, you know, put you on the spot and say, how would you take those things and apply them back to you being a coach? Uh if you wanted to follow the same process, what are some ways that you would transfer it over? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I think um I think if I had to like dissect it into okay. Um, if I were a current college or high school coach, is that kind of what you're asking? Like, hey, what would I do? Yeah. So I was thinking, like, if you're, if you, now that you have this experience and how you like to break down hitters and that assessment process and all those things in the programming, how would you apply that as a coach? And like, how would you make that applicable? Absolutely. So I think the first component I would have, so it's like you're, we're thinking like day one of the fall or, um, yeah, ho- hopefully it's the fall. Hopefully your program's working in the fall. If, if you're only a springtime program, no winter stuff, I don't know if that exists anymore, um, in, you know, unless you're a real small school. But um, I think having a questionnaire, number one, have a questionnaire about specific thought processes related to prior success, past training, your experience lifting weights. I mean, learn as much as you can from these guys. I mean, you can even figure out guys' family history, like, you know, our, our mom and dad at home. Uh, you know, I have a kid right now and he lives with his grandparents and um, like he, he just has a different dynamic at home. So you want to understand all these things about your players because sometimes it's not mechanical. Sometimes it's emotional. I mean, being a good coach is, is understanding as many components about your athletes that you have and, and trying to one, impact their lives above all, make them better people, better men. And two, hopefully improve their career. So I think number one is just have that questionnaire ready. It doesn't cost you anything. If you're a high school teacher, you probably get some free printer paper. <laughs> so uh, you use that. Um, I think the next thing I would do would be use a blast sensor. Um, Joey, I think you had the guy, a guy from Blast on um, a few weeks ago or or mm-hmm. uh, maybe a month ago, but. Use the blast sensor. I mean, they're they're what one hundred and twenty five, hundred and fifty dollars. Maybe that's even too much. Well, even and yeah. even cheaper, even cheaper with us because we're getting people discounts. Jordan, we're getting people discounts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, shameless plug right there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, I I prefer the blast sensor. I like that's what I use. Um, I just had really good experience with it. They seem to do a really good job with their apps and and updating things and making things more user friendly. Um, I think if your kids go out and buy one, I mean, this all depends on budget. If you make each of your guys go out and buy one, if that's part of your, your fall fee or your spring fee, um, then great. But I think really you just, you can get away with one, but two or three blast sensors, gather data, record it on day one. What's their baseline bat speed? What kind of attack angle they have on average? And what is their time to contact? You can you can figure out a ton by just like how fast guys are moving. Uh, exit speed is awesome, and unless you have a rap soda or hit tracks, you're gonna get a kind of inaccurate exit velo on a, on a radar gun um, because uh, police radar doesn't really calculate it with launch angle very well. So 
that's why I kind of promote the blast sensor a little more when you're in that team setting. I think you can get a little more information and time to contact is just, that's huge. Like how, if, if we only have 500 milliseconds, you know, on a 70 to 80 miles an hour and then even less as it goes higher and we're taking 0.25 seconds to get to contact, like just do basic math. We're, we're going to be in trouble. That guy's going to be in trouble. It's going to be very low adjustability guy. Before you run past that, I wanted to ask you if you have some data on that. I thought that was an interesting point. You said that the radar guns, uh, the police radar guns, they don't pick up angle as well uh, with accurate exit velo. Is that what you're getting from your Rapsodos? Correct. Yeah. So the Rapsodos a little does a different element to radar. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is a little more accurate. Does a good job. Like when I hit a ball in the air, it calculates a better velocity, more accurate velocity. Um, and I, I don't really understand the science and math behind it. I know I heard this from Kyle Bodie um, about it has something to do with cosine angle, um, but that like unless you have like a TrackMan radar, it's very very difficult to get true to get true exit velo. So if you're just mm-hmm. using a radar gun, it's gonna it's gonna kind of always reward ground balls. And I remember this, uh, yeah. So, um, it, yeah, so that, that's my only concern is if you want to reward hard ground balls, the exit, like your exit velo on a, on a regular radar gun is probably going to spike up a little bit when you hit that hard ground ball shortstop if you're right-handed hitter. So not that it's a bad thing. Like you can still do a good job with the radar gun. If that's what you have, I think you should use it. I think, yeah. I think just, just kind of. You know, just make sure you don't put too much emphasis on it, especially if you got that guy who's like really, really steep, crushes a barrel, you know, crushes baseball down. And so you have to be a little careful with that. And I think if, if we're using a blast sensor, we're, we're measuring the body and, uh, and we're, we're, getting, we're getting that metric. Um, so I, I think that's, that's Is there, what I meant. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And what, what have you seen when you kind of compare Rapsodo to Exavilo, you know, how many miles per hour are we talking? In terms of like if somebody hits a 25 degree launch angle, yeah, that's just saying in general, like you know what are, what are the you know what's the difference? Are we talking you know one two miles an hour? Or are we talking you know eight? Um, so when I started, so I used to do the radar gun, and I thought it was still valuable because the main thing I use it for is just for guys to be conscious of it, right? Like mm-hmm. you should be in there trying to get your best swing off every time. Mm-hmm. Um. And so the radar gun, it, just the fact that it's there, and I actually had it plugged into a television screen, and so the radar would show every time. And it was real basic, but it still worked really well. It just kind of rewarded those ground balls. And then if we're comparing exit velo on like a doubles trajectory, so we hit a ball that seems really hard, and we're hitting it you know, on the upper back of the cage. It's maybe 20 to 30 degree launch angle. The wrap soda was showing me on the same guy was showing me about six to nine miles an hour difference. That's crazy. Yeah, like a yeah, like a, a guy would hit the ball hard on the ground and he'd show 91. And then he would absolutely crush a ball on the top of the cage and it would show like 81, 83. Jeez. And so the, I was like, man, there's something missing here cuz I've done it. I'm like I've seen enough of this now over mm-hmm. the course of using the radar gun for the last 10, 12 months every day and then I used it at UNC in batting practice. I'll get into that later. I used to use it at batting practice like pre-game was just it just I seemed like man I'm am I doing a little bit of a disservice to these guys it, should I go invest the money in in the rap soto and that was just kind of coming out at the time and I think I was one of the first guys to have it 
um, in in northern Colorado. Um, I don't, yeah. Um, so it's just been a really good tool that way. So interesting. No, that's 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 really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, um, kind of transitioning, I wanted to move into something Joey and I frequently talk about. Um, that's kind of what's realistically happening in someone's swing versus what they feel is happening in their swing. Um, can you kind of dive into that the that real versus feel and why there's often a disconnect between the player's perception of their swing versus reality? Yeah, for sure. I, I wrote a little blog about this, and it's a pretty multifactorial, multi-layer question, but... I think I'll start with Franz Bosch. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Strength and Conditioning, uh, sorry, Strength and Coordination, an Integrative Approach. Um, it's really eye-opening, just kind of the, a little more neuroscience involved with the way he coaches track and field athletes. So it was a really, yeah, I love learning things that are non-baseball. Um, and, and it kind of brings me, brings me back to earth, like, oh, let's think common sense about this. But Bosch talks about that we don't learn a movement by doing it over and over, but we learn it by determining the difference between the two movements. So when you talk about feel, we're really talking about proprioception, uh, which is the body's awareness of our movement through space. And uh, I think what happens on camera doesn't mean that we feel the sensation that we see, if that makes sense. And as a hitter, we have roughly 10 to 15 seconds between pitches to make those necessary adjustments. Um, and we really rely on our field to make that adjustment. And I think with elite players, the disconnect starts happening because the reliance on that perception is so much greater because they've relied on it throughout that whole career. So uh, when we talk about, you know, big league guys, like elite guys, I think they're rarely, if ever, focused internally on what the body's doing during a live at bat. I really feel like they have the ability to get more internal during training and actually grow from it in some cases. I think the research clearly points to having that true focal point beyond the environment. And um, so I think this is where the argument of real versus feel happens. Uh, you hear these MLB guys talk and, you know, they're describing what they feel. Um, and I think most people are aware we don't swing down. Um, I think, think that's really obvious now with, you know, we have video for the last 40 years and it's very, very obvious now that with an iPhone, we are probably not swinging downward at the ball. So there's, there is a complicated array of joint angles, levers, sequence movements that all have to be timed. And so I believe the real is just important to understand where we're losing energy um, and where we're losing adjustability with guys, but that feel is different for every guy. So as a coach, um, we need to be creative, intuitive to guide those positive gains. So where where I think real versus feel is a common thing for me is with the technology. So when I'm using Rapsodo, when I'm using video analysis, um, I feel like it makes things more precise. I think the fear sometimes with coaches is, you know, the more the technology I have, the more technology I have, the more information I give an athlete, am I actually causing a detriment? And I, in some cases, you probably are. Some guys don't need to be overloaded, especially if they're already good and they already have high proprioceptive feel. But I use technology, and I learned this from a golf coach, actually. I love this thought, and I cannot remember his name, unfortunately, off the top of my head. But um, it's a tool to make things more precise. I mean, we want to waste less time coaching stuff that's potentially the wrong thing 
and uh, and try to be as least detailed as we need to be to get the adjustment to happen. And so it's a super interesting topic. I love talking to real versus feel. Yeah, and one thing I was going to dive into there too is I think sometimes coaches have that perception that you're you're overloading guys with information. But I mean, I think that's coaching. Period. I mean, I'm at let's say just verbal cues. Coaches do that without data. You know, they give them a thousand verbal cues, and this guy is, you know, all in his head because he's thinking too much information at once. So I think data is the same right. thing. Is we use data. Um, but how much data we release to a player depends on, again, uh, the level that they're at. And I think it, when someone gets overloaded is when we try to give them too much data, let that be cues, let that be, you know, analytics, let that be, et cetera. If we try to throw what we've been studying for the last 20 years at them in two minutes, of course, they're going to be overloaded. Of course, they're not gonna be able to move their body. But I think that has less to do with the learner and more to do with how good the instructor or the coach is at teaching. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the art of coaching is saying the right th- saying the right things and and saying the right things at the right time and knowing when to to be quiet and I really like like I think Jason Ochard does a really good job. I've never met Jason. Um I've actually I've talked to him over social media a few times, but he thinks in the way that I'm only going to say something when it's really really necessary and choosing those spots is vital. I mean, I, to me that's the art of coaching is is letting the player self-discover, letting them kind of understand uh, their body and let them get a minimum amount of reps at a drill or just preseason. Like, let them get that thousand reps before we start trying to manipulate uh, too much. Put them in an environment that promotes success. Um, let those reps happen in that environment. And then we'll start kind of breaking down and taking the next step. So, Yeah, I love it. So... Now I'm going to ask you a loaded question of loaded questions, <laughs> okay. but how do you go about helping players develop better spatial awareness and proprioception? Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is, I think this one has to be really science-based. I mean, I think that, well, I'll start with this. So this is one of my favorite things to say to guys, just kind of like a phrase I always stick to, but, uh, we want to train for movement to be subconscious so that mentality, reaction, and decision-making can be at the forefront. And that requires that requires an ability to that, – that requires time. Like you need a ton of time working. You need a ton of time training. Um, and having that feel of your body moving through space, um, I mean, the better you understand how your body moves through space, the better signals you're going to get from your nervous system. I mean – I think that's the that's the big bottom line there. So, um, in terms of development of it, I would say I would say number one, I think it comes from the volume of quality reps done with a variation of external stimuli um, and done in a challenging environment. So I would say that would be number one. Number two, um, I believe you gain special awareness when you're acquired, or sorry, spatial awareness when you're acquired to make decisions under time constraints. Um, and this doesn't have to be baseball related. I think there's a huge benefit of playing other sports at a young age, under 14, because the brain is so much more pliable during those development stages. And I think research really shows shows that as well. So it's kind of like when you take an 18-year-old baseball player, or sorry, an 18-year-old who's never played baseball, like that's some tough luck. I don't think we can rewind enough to get you to be good enough at baseball 
unless you're a freak. I mean, that's really, really tough to do. So I think that those youth stages are so vital um, in exposing guys to to different stimuli. Um, and totally off top, well, kind of on topic, but not baseball related. I play guitar. I love music. Uh, I played guitar since I was young. And just the coordination that you get from that, like you have a time constraint all the time. Like it's, it's mind blowing how music is relative to baseball. You're under time constraint. You have to stay in rhythm. Like you have to be coordinated enough to hit a clean note at the right time. And that's the art and beauty of it. And uh, I think hitting is so relative to that. So um, something I love talking about, but also have a two year old son who's, who is uh, kind of going through his spatial awareness and he can't hit a moving target yet, but he's really trying hard. So uh, that's another funny, funny element to, to proprioception there. But uh, moving on, I think number three, and this is relative to older guys. So guys who are a little more experienced, a little more, uh, you know, higher training age to say, uh, I think fitness and movement training allow for those proprioceptive compensations. So I think when you get a good idea of like, just feeling good motion. Like you start to get that mind muscle connection. You start to learn from everything you're doing in a different way. You're so, your intent is so much higher. Uh, it's it's fun when you start to get, when you're athletic enough to be able to play the game for a long time and you get to feel all those compensations and those different things you're, you know, that you weren't aware of before. Like, Oh man, I wish I would have felt this a long time ago. And I probably get that every week now. Cause I hit all the time. Like I, I probably practice more now than I did in high school. I used to show up on like January 1st ready to hit and I hadn't done any hitting for like two months and, you know, barely lifted weights. It wasn't my thing. And uh, it's a kind of, kind of funny story there. But um, I think the last point I would make would be problem solving. So allow players to solve problems. It's fun for them. You're creating a challenge. You're letting the athlete screw it up until that athlete calibrates to achieve the end goal. So, you can't really put a time limit on letting the body find movement solution, but that's what you want to do. You want to allow the body to find a movement solution to an external problem. And so that is my true belief of increasing spatial awareness, improving spatial awareness and, and feel and proprioception is, is probably those four things. If the show could stop right there. Holy Jesus. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was really good with the four point. Well, that was good, man. <laughs> yeah, I I, I kind of wanted to dive into point number two you made um, about the weight training and strengthening. Um, right. You kind of mentioned how you don't want to do that till you get older. How important do you think it is to still implement some of those movements at a younger age? So when they get older, it's not like they're being thrown thrown into something new. Absolutely. And yeah, I hope I wasn't misleading there. I, I truly believe that resistance training is happening your whole life. Eric Cressy makes an awesome point about, hey, when you're nine years old and you're jumping from rock to rock in a creek bed, you're resistance training. When you're holding 40 pounds of textbooks in a backpack on your back, like you're resistance training whether you know it or not. Um, but are you getting a training effect from it? And so in a perfect world, your son or daughter is involved in some sort of resistance training that is age appropriate while you're also allowing them to like play, have fun, um, have like scheduled and unscheduled sports and, 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 and letting them be involved in that when they're young. And so in a perfect scenario, you're, you have play, you have like just a learn, like 
an environment where they learn to love sports, learn to love baseball. And then you're also teaching them like, hey, let's go. We're going to go and try to work our body a little bit too because this is going to help you. This is going to make you stronger. It's going to improve um, your self-esteem. It's going to improve like your intelligence. I mean, you're going to do better in school. When your body is primed, your brain works better. So does that answer that question? No, yeah, you, you did a great job of explaining that. So how would, let's say, you know, they're they're at that stage where they're training, they're getting stronger, they're kind of in a in a set schedule and routine. How does that look transitioning from off-season to preseason to in-season? So if if we're talking about like a high school guy uh, or even college guys, I think I, I'm kind of talking more about high school a little bit because at most colleges now, you're, there's usually a strength coach, whether it's part-time or full-time. So there's a little more guidance. And even at some high schools in this area that I'm in right now in Fort Collins, um, they're doing a good job at hiring strength coaches and just giving guys a little a little more specific approach to their sport. I think it's really good. Um, but still, like I said, like you're going to have to take ownership of your own career. And so this, this transition is where I think a lot of guys, and this is a great question because a lot of, and I didn't know how to do this in college even. I just, this is always a hard thing. Like, how does the volume change? Like, should I be lifting heavy during the season? Should I be, you know, how many exercises should I be doing during season? What's the preseason look like? Or, you know, I have, I need to start hitting and throwing more, but it makes me tired when I'm lifting four days a week and I'm hitting and throwing six, five, six days a week preseason. Uh, so, so managing energy, managing fatigue, managing recovery is a huge deal. So, I would say, number one, know your schedule and plan around it. Uh, especially important for pitchers, for overall recovery. And as you know, most high school good at, most good high school athletes are probably going to pitch. So you're, you're probably your shortstop three or four games, and then you got to go pitch a fourth. you got to start a fourth game. So or, or however your high school is set up. I know in Colorado we have a pretty short season. It's 20 to 25 games really in the spring. So you're kind of throwing every – Every five days, but you probably only play two, three games a week. Um, so you're always focused on managing the correct volume because you're lifting to become a better, healthier ball player. So uh, I think that's a huge piece. Is like like it, it's fun to be, it's fun to enjoy the aesthetic benefit of fitness, but you really always have to keep that mindset of, dude, you are trying to be a better ball player. And the aesthetics will come. Like you don't have to lift like a bodybuilder year round to uh, to get muscle hypertrophy. And there are times when muscle hypertrophy is probably not going to be your primary goal, and you have to understand that. So, a uh, good example, I'd say. So, if we're talking about the off season, so if if we're transitioning, so here's off season. We're we're very much, you know, low skill, very low game volume, if if any. Yeah, hopefully. Um, this is where it seems that the best hypertrophy or muscle building is going to, or bone density changes are going to occur. So we kind of let our bodies restore all that tension around joints. Um, I know Mike Reinhold and Eric Cressy, they talk about this is just having that time every year where you just restore like natural uh, static tension around joints and let the nervous system kind of recuperate from all that uh, stress of torsion and, and, and grinding on joints and, and, you know, high high tension ways. So as you move from off season, and hopefully I explained that well enough, but as you as you transition from off season to preseason, that's where most guys really kick skill work into high gear. So 
while they're still making gains in the weight room, they also have to start like, hey, we got to be, we got to get that arm stretched out. We're going to need six to eight weeks just to get your arm kind of feeling back to normal. Uh, you got to get the timing of the swing down, all while you're kind of using a totally a new body. If you've done if you've done the lifting part well in the off season, you're trying to it's kind of hard to get back that feel sometimes. So you need to give yourself that time. But total sets and reps are going to be modified a little bit. So I think the best thing I try to do is organize days into high output days, moderate output days, and then try to fit in whole days of rest if I can. And and some guys are different about that, but. I really like to think about high output, low output days and, and kind of periodize that way. So preseason schedule might look like, um, for example, like on a Monday, it's high output day. So you got your hitting, your plyo ball routine, your long toss, your defense, maybe a heavy lower body day, maybe some accessory upper body stuff. And then you got Tuesday where you're just doing hitting and then soft tissue work, just trying to get, you know, trying to get good tissue work, good tissue quality back. Uh, maybe some mobility just to kind of get your range of motion back, work off the soreness a little bit. And then back to Wednesday, we're back to long toss, plyo ball, sprint work, maybe a heavy upper body day and a lower body accessory day. And then back we got hit where Thursday we're hitting soft tissue work, kind of cooling it down a little bit. Obviously we're going to need enough hitting volume. So we're going to probably have to hit four days minimum. Friday back to hitting plyo ball, long toss, sprint work, maybe a moderate lift day. Um, with high intensity sprint work that day and then Saturday hitting defense light throw and catch and then maybe Sunday full rest so I think that's a pretty good like preseason program right there it's, it's kind of general but that, that may be a guy's day and then we move to in season and I think this is where it gets tricky is you're figuring out what's best per athlete and the old it depends portion comes in there right and this is the whole like that's where coaches are coaches because you got to manage all these guys. I feel kind of bad for pitching coaches because they, they have so much management to do. I'm kind of like a little bit appreciative that the hitting is my thing and not so much uh, training pitchers per se. But I think some guys lift before games, some guys lift the morning after, but you got to fit it in somewhere. We don't want to lose that development time. So it's so huge. Uh, Zach Deshant, I think I'm saying that right, at TCU is, is really awesome about putting out good information about in-season training. And so, but in season, bottom line, volume's lower. Uh, output on the major lifts is still high. Uh, you want to maintain strength and power. Um, obviously, maintain muscle mass. It's kind of a slow deterioration through the season, but it doesn't have to be if the nutrition's good and we're we're staying consistent. Got got the right volume, so it's important to always manage. That's why we assess and reassess. We want to make sure body weight's good, um, muscle strength's good. Uh, speed's good, uh, range of motion at each joint's good. So uh, assess, reassess, that's kind of the common theme I keep coming back to. I wanted, uh, you know, a great thing that you kind of dove into right there is you started talking about um, in season and, and having lower volume, but still trying to maintain um, optimal power and things like that. What is, uh, do you have a percentage range in mind where you like to see guys work? I, I brought up in a previous episode where something for me personally that I knew that I needed to do is I needed to hit like on major lift, multi-joint lifts, like deadlifts, squats, uh, things like that. I needed to at least hit 90% for one rep um, throughout that workout. Maybe again, I, I, you know, do a couple warm-up sets, get up there again, just deadlift for me, you know, it was somewhere in the 475 range. 
I needed to hit 475, set that thing back down, and then maybe I go to lighter reps. But I needed to do that to keep my my levels up. Is that something that you endorse? Is that something that you have some opposite thoughts on? What are, what are your thoughts there, percentage wise? Absolutely. Uh, my first thought is you're a pretty strong dude, Joey. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> hey, Bo. Oh Bo's man, this... don't tell him that, man. He's been walking around with his head so big. Yeah. <laughs> no, Bo, Bo, Bo is the same way. Me and Bo lifted together at Sterling. He would don't don't let him fool you. He okay. we eats through lift with me the same the same weight. So <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, deadlift was never like super strong for me. So I'm kind of envious of that. I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy and it, for some reason, my uh, deadlift has just never been great. Bench press has been pretty bad. So I, I do, do the best I can, but um, I do, I do see a huge value in the deadlift. And then to answer your question, it depends a little bit. I think what you say about that 90% piece is, I think for a lot of guys that can really work. I think, I think perception is a little, I got so many guys that don't want to be sore um, to play games and I totally get it. I don't want to be sore either. I want to feel good. Um, but, but you learn how to manage it. The more you do these things, um, it's just like, it's just like hitting, you know, the more you swing, the more you learn, you take a bunch of pitches, you probably aren't learning a ton. I mean, you're, you're getting some learning benefit, but the more you swing throughout your life, the more you recalibrate what a strike is, what you can hit, what your capabilities are. And uh, it kind of makes things, you know, more real for you. So what I would say is I think you should even be gaining strength in season. So if your volume is lower, you should be able to feel fresh enough to actually put up some more weight if you're not skipping days of lifting, if your nutrition is good. Um, I know plenty of guys through the first half of the season, they are still putting up more weight on the squad or, or on the deadlift than they did three months prior, right in the preseason. So you, it, it kind of depends. I, I'm a proponent of guys continuing to increase their strength. It's all about the desire to want to do resistance training during season. You got to have a kind of a, you got to have a special guy. You got to have a good worker who wants to do that. Um, Cause it's very, very easy at the high school and college level to kind of, kind of skip days. So I know the elite college baseball programs are still lifting three and four days a week. I mean, yeah, the time and duration is lower. There's a little more focus on maintaining mobility, but to answer your question, I think we should be pushing it. And, and, and but you know, also too, I want to give, I don't want to give the perception the opposite way either of, of this is me and you are both speaking that you prepared. We're assuming that you prepared for that before season. You know, like, exactly. um, you, you know, we're, we're, we're not saying, and I don't want the listeners to get the wrong idea. We're not saying, oh, okay, we didn't, you know, this guy's a multi-sport guy, or like if you're a high school coach, uh, this guy's a multi-sport guy. He didn't lift with you during the fall. He hasn't lifted a weight the entire fall or, you know, because he was playing football and maybe their lifting program's completely different. And then all of a sudden you get in right. season, and you're like, hey, man, you got to hit 90%. And, you know, you're in there yelling at him because he's not hitting 90%. Like the athlete has to be prepared. Um, their body. Right. And then that's the difference too, is you're talking to is that it depends is physiologically, we're all different. And even the same person is different from, you know, again, if you take in everything else they're doing, if you take in the nutrition, if you take in all of these other aspects of their workload, et cetera, et cetera, maybe stress at home, all these other things, you know, if, when you actually get a holistic view, we as individuals physiologically are constantly evolving and changing. So 
we can't always say, okay, well, this year 90% worked, but you know, maybe next year, let's say you're Derek Jeter and you were, you know, you're 40 years old and you're going into that year, maybe he can't do that workload anymore or et cetera. And it, it has to be ever evolving. So I, I just wanted to clear that up because I don't I don't want people to get the wrong perception that all of a sudden, you know, well, I listened to this on a podcast and and now now you know you're here, we're in season, you're lifting 90% <laughs> and there's no right, variability right. to that program. Um I just wanted to clear that up because exactly. me, me and you, me and you uh, I know sometimes I've done that where I've ran past the you know, we're assuming that people are doing the work prior in the year that they may not be doing and you have to prepare for that. Right. Um, and if they're, if they're not working out and it's not consistent, um, mm-hmm. their, their protocol is just going to be different. It's going to be more maintenance. It's going to be just, yep. Hey, it's better that you lift and not lift. We just got to yep. maintain muscle mass. And, and, yep. uh, so. Yeah. And then to your point, it's just, just like that too, is if I know, and the reason that I knew I had to do that is if I did it for, let's say I skipped a week. Well, my 90% is not the same 90%. Well, because you know, just as I know, when you're in that 90% range, my 90% actually be, might be my 100% that day is because, again, maybe what I'm eating, right. maybe the workload I've been that week. So one thing to think about is when you get in that top 10%, there's a whole – it could be psychological. There's a whole bunch of things that can affect that last 10%, and that's very interesting, and it's interesting how that relates over the life of what the top 10%, what separates uh, people. But with that being said, um, you know, one thing for me is, is if you're not consistent – um, consistently lifting and you're not consistently hitting that. And again, maybe you have to hit it twice a week. Maybe you need to hit it, you know, once every two weeks, it's going to be different from person to person. For me, if I didn't do it at least once a week, the next week, that weight felt 200, like it was my 200%. Like I could not get that weight (laughs) up. It was just how I was. I wasn't the greatest athlete. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't Bo Callis. I couldn't just walk in there and just throw weight around. So, (laughs) (laughs) so with that, but no, that, that, that's funny. Um, now that kind of brings me and something that I love that you have this side of you as well is that you're certified in biomechanics, you know, you're a bio, biomechanics specialist. With that being said, how has learning about how the body is built to move benefited you as a coach? Um, it, you know, it's just another level of understanding. I think strength and conditioning is very rooted in biomechanics. Uh, I think that's why I've always appreciated having a strength and conditioning learned mindset for hitting. And I think the biomechanics component is understanding joint kinematics and 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 arthrokinematics and 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 realizing there's ways to create more energy, more leverage, um, understanding how levers work in the body. It, it's it's a way for me to like bridge strength and conditioning and movement training to hitting and and maybe relate to guys in a in a different way. So. Um, I, I think the bottom line is I actually have more questions than answers now uh, because of it. Because it seems like every time I add a component to to my coaching, that it, it just opens up this whole new world for me. And I think that's maybe why I'm obsessed with coaching. And there's just so much to learn. I love reading. I love learning new stuff. I love, most of all, helping light bulbs go off for guys. And I think that biomechanics piece is a is a huge benefit. So I think understanding mechanics loads from a joint by joint perspective is a big deal. I think biomechanics really gives you some insight into that. I think you really start to cue in where energy is leaking from when you understand kinematics. 
and have like just just a little deeper understanding. I'm not saying I know everything about biomechanics. I'm not a biomechanist. Um, that's a that's a huge step above me. But uh, as a coach, when you can step back from a baseball perspective and think holistically, it makes you think outside the box. And I look at things like mechanics in golf and tennis for inspiration. I think good athletes, regardless of sport, they produce and capture energy really well. And uh, teaching that to my guys is is sometimes a light bulb igniter. Yeah, you kind of you kind of walked right into my next question, and that's every movement throughout the swing has a function through that swing process. Um, so that's great. Athletes are strong. That's great. They're more mobile. What allows those lead athletes to make adjustments so quickly and to realign movements uh, within the proper uh, sequence? Yeah, so that's a great question. I like to think about that I train for two primary things in terms of hitting. So we want to build bat speed and we want to build adjustability. Coach Dan Heefner talks about building the engine and the steering wheel. I think everybody thinks about it differently. I just don't have a, I don't have like a cute way to, <laughs> to a cute metaphor for it. Like he does. <laughs> That's what makes him good is, you know, he's a good coach. He, he thinks like that and relates to guys. And I think the engine and the steering wheel thing is genius. Um, but I think bottom line is understanding causes versus symptoms. And it's kind of a loaded statement, but, uh, you know, what is the cause and what's this, you know, are we trying to address symptoms? Like, what are you feeling here and what is actually the root of it? And so if we do a good job building the athlete first, I think they have a better ability to, to make those adjustments. So in terms of what elite hitters do, uh, I feel like elite hitters have movements that allow their nervous system to process information more clearly. I mean, there there is a genetic component to this. There's a visual component to this. But elite guys, the way they move um, allows their nervous system to, to process things really, really clean uh, with very little noise. And in the case of bad movements, so if a guy who has bad movements, and, and usually it's not an elite guy, obviously, but those bad movements cut down our wiggle room for air. I mean, they cause the brain to work harder. They cause the nervous system to, to spill out more noise and just get in the way. And then you get a slower and muddled reaction. And where good movers, guys who, and this is the priority, is like when you move good, when you move well, sorry for that grammar, uh, when you move well, you allow for extra space and extra time. For example, uh, if we talk about stride length, if we're increasing the stride length to a ball that we recognize as, you know, off speed and away or off speed down, uh, that visual motor system is going to allow the barrel to be carried farther towards contact by increasing that stride length. Uh, I watched some really cool video of Mike Trout and how he does it. It's just interesting to watch. This stride length changes um, on, on, on location. And that's mm -hmm. happening in that window of 400 milliseconds or less. And it's just it's mind-blowing. The opposite example would be a ball hard or high velo up and in. Uh, it's going to trigger the brain to maybe shorten the stride or, or like Carlos Correa, like he adjusts that rear leg in an effort to take a tighter route towards contact. I mean, you don't kind of, you don't know what everybody's going to do, but that, that like movement can't fit inside of a pristine, you know, box. Like everybody's going to move a little differently to, to get the barrel towards contact uh, without sacrificing the integrity of that kinetic chain. So I think one more point I'll make is, you know, I was listening to Ryan Parker, another guy I don't know. I'm like listening to all these guys. They they don't know who I am. <laughs> uh, but 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 Ryan Parker uh, with 108. Now now he's with 108. But uh, he said never let the first time you do something be the first time you do it. 
And I think elite hitters have seen so many scenarios. Like they've made all the mistakes possible from a hitting perspective by the time they reach pro baseball. I mean, and when you've made every mistake, it's like, it's like when my little boy, like when he touches something hot, even though I told him not to, like he just had to do it. He had to make that mistake, but now he knows. And if you can imagine that on steroids times a thousand, uh, that's what's happening in those elite guys. And so I think there's a lot we don't understand about vision. I think there's a ton that we don't understand about neuromuscular reaction that allows elite pro guys to make adjustments so quickly. So um, I think neuroscience tells us that the brain and the body are, are making these adjustments the entire time the ball's traveling towards us. Kind of like that Mike Trout reference I just, I just gave. Um, we're just making these constant recalibrations as all this new feedback is captured. And so what I'll say on that end is we've got to give our system a head start. And so I use this one word, I use anticipate, right? What's a catcher trying, what's a catcher going to anticipate when he calls in a curveball, right? He's, he's anticipating a possibility of a ball in the dirt, right? I mean, you have to anticipate, you've got to prepare the brain and the body for the scenario. Um, and if we're wrong, our initial adjustment has to be good. So uh, we, we need to be really athletic to allow these adjustments to be made on short notice. And if we anticipate correctly, we just continue. We just keep going. The only real decision we should ever have to make is no. No, I'm not going because it's a ball. Or no, I'm not going because this really, really deviates from my plan. Um, and so I think elite hitters are always anticipating something. I think that's what's so different from lower-level baseball. And kind of what I've learned as a uh, working with Division One guys, and this last summer I coached in Santa Barbara for a summer team, and uh, we had a ton of really good guys, like just like a bunch of guys that we just were watching on TV in the College World Series, like those who's on our team. And those guys anticipate, they do a really like that. Not only are they athletic, but they're anticipating location or whether it's going to be a strike or a ball or pitch type, but you got to be ready for something um, or you're going to be ready for nothing. Man, that's so good. And, you know, that's what I was thinking through on that as well is that, I, I posted something about this a little while back about how when I hit off the tee when I was younger, I always wanted it in a certain spot <laughs> at a certain depth of where I thought I could make optimal right. contact. And I only practiced in that one spot. Um, and so it's funny is now I can I think the complete opposite. I think that's what made me not adjustable. Uh, I think that's what made me be able to hit a ball and you know batting practice at 45 and not be able to hit it when the guy's throwing 90 is that just like you're saying, that perception and that feedback of a ball coming at you at 90 miles an hour, your mind has to make a quicker decision. And then on top of that, then you know, uh, I talked about this with the the hitting coach, a uh, uh, AAA coach for the Angels, and me and him were talking is he said, what does on time mean? And I was like, that's a good question. And I started thinking about that. It's just like, how often are you actually on time? Like perfectly on time and how, you know, and then also another question he raised to me is, um, I think that actually this might've been Eugene. He kind of asked me this too, is he's like, how, how many times do you think you've taken the same exact swing twice? And you start thinking about that and you're like, you know, again, your, your body is adjusting so quickly 
um, to all these different uh, perceptual feedbacks of the ball, you know, the ball running in on you again, where's it, where is release the background, um, the wind blowing. I mean, that where the catcher's getting set up, you know, what was the pitch before all these other things. And it's making qu- quick, rapid decisions as this ball is in flight to you. And just like you said, that anticipation kind of preps you for it. And then one thing I posted a while back too, and B and Bo were talking about this is I get more interested in the things that my, how my body reacts to a situation I wasn't prepared for. And when I take a swing and I take this crazy route or I, you know, I, I hit a ball one day in batting practice um, when the guy was, were throwing to me, it was like coming at me like 90 and I hit the ball, but my front foot, I mean, came like two feet off the ground and I hit a line drive uh, like over the shortstop. And I was like, that's so interesting to me, even though, you know, when I was younger, that'd have been like, I would have discarded that swing. I would have never posted it on social media. I would have been like, this is a terrible. But meanwhile, now I'm like, that produced a hit, you know, like why and the, the reason that my body decided to do that, I wasn't thinking that, but it's just so interesting to me uh, to think about those things and how to develop that. And, you know, there's so many ways that we're going to have to develop how to actually develop that. I think, I think right now we're kind of in the spot where I kind of heard this in church today and I really love this. So I'm going to tie this in is in church. She's talking about feelings and how our feelings are what are basically instant feedback for what our wisdom still needs to calculate. So I think the feel is good, but it gives us just quick feedback and you don't know what really happened. You just know that it felt good and you want to do it again. And then later on, the wisdom is like, oh, that's why that works because, you know, my attack angle was this or whatever, you know, we learn the data that we have behind it later on. But that's why I don't think, you know, the feel isn't bad. You know, the guys that are feelers, some of the old school guys and the guys that have the data aren't bad. And as Eugene would say, it's kind of a blend of both. We need all the data, all the, you know, and feelings are a data point. You know, it's something that we can ask players about like, hey, what do you feel when you do this? Um, and it's something we can reference. And it, it's still a data point, even though, you know, people want to separate the two. It's still a data point and something that obviously if you collect it and give it a numerical value, you can measure all these things. So um, just all very interesting. I love that you you tied that in because I think there's so much science we can still we still need to collect on that side of things. So, Absolutely. you know, tying from there, I I'm just interested in, in this point of it as well is how do you know use your strength and conditioning background uh, to teach players movements? I know that you've talked about you know do you have a could you also kind of share with us a case where you've used like okay I'm trying to teach this movement and this player's not understanding it so I use my strength background to teach them how to move. Can you kind of dive into that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, again, I use evaluation and try to get creative. And based off that evaluation, I'm kind of like always thinking of the five to six things that we could probably play with if we need to. And so, I mean, any, any tools and options. So I think, Joey, you were telling me the other day about somebody who was teaching throwing to try to clean up hitting mechanics and i think i think that was so funny but in terms of strength and and conditioning uh i think you can break it like you can really break things down to the most basic component and you're if you do a good job addressing cause and symptoms and you kind of know okay what's the regressed version of this so if i have a guy who like let's let's say for example he's not using his hips very well it could be a couple things that, that are causing this dysfunction, this like low velocity or this low angular velocity hip turn. Uh, and it could be a front leg. 
Uh, it could be that he's going forward too early or too heavy. And so it's pretty multifactorial when you talk about, okay, why is this segment not working? But if you go back and, and you know, for example, like, okay, let's make sure he can make, make sure he can do a basic lunge first. Let's try this. Let's see if he can actually do a good lunge. Let's see if he can actually rotate this, uh, this cable on a cable machine. Let's see if he can actually take the PVC pipe and keep it from moving and turn his hips left and right. I mean, how do we get like a bat out of this guy's hand and see if he can, if he can move it. And sometimes getting the bat out of the hand is exactly a strength and conditioning application. Like take the bat out, let's throw the med ball around. Let's make sure we can, you know, let's make sure we can do a lunge. Let's make sure like, Let's make sure your push-up, like you can actually do a push-up. It tells you a ton about what kind of guy you have when they move just really, really poorly. And then, at, like, some guys are a little bummed out when they come to me because they're, they they want to keep hitting. Like, like hey, let's let's go hit. Let's go get off the tee. Let's, I want to use your cool Rapsodo machine or, or whatever it is. Uh, like, that's what they want to use. That's the fun part, right? That's the stuff you post yeah. on social media. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just as guilty of that. Like I always try to post on social media, the stuff I think is cool or when light bulbs are going off for a guy and it may not always be pristine looking, but I also think that's not reality. Uh, you know, I don't have 35 pro guys with me. Um, I have a blend of, of everybody. So I'm going to post what I think is kind of interesting. Now that's not what happens on a day-to-day basis. On a day-to-day basis, we're taking some guys don't hit for the first four times I see them. Um, we're literally going to get you stronger. If you can't move a two-pound bat, and like we got problems, um, this is not a hitting issue. And so, I think that just helps me. And I'm hope I'm answering this question in in what you're intending. But I think sometimes we have to take a one or the other approach to it. Like, let's kind of stop hitting for a second. Let's get your mentality right. And let's get you a little stronger and see if we can clean this movement up. And sometimes you can clean a movement up in 60 minutes. Uh, sometimes you can do it in 20 minutes. It, it it all depends on how many tools you have in your toolbox, obviously. And mm-hmm. and if you've hopefully you've seen that problem before, so you can kind of reference like, oh, I remember I had a guy like this before one time and, and uh, this is what we tried, so let's try this first. I mean, you're kind of referencing on your experience there. But yeah, the strength conditioning background component really, really helps because I think it it gives me an opportunity to, to take the comprehensive approach. It gives me the opportunity to change gears for guys that need it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I was going to say, I was going to ask you, Bo, on this too, is when I know when me and you would hit, we would talk about, yeah, it's almost feeling like, you know, we're doing a deadlift or things like that. You know, I, Bo, was there sometimes when you would when you would hit or things like that that you would you would reference that or when you train guys that you reference that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all a relation. I think the way an athlete can manage their body throughout the movements, the functional movements of weight training, I think it's a direct translation to the movements in the swing because a, a, a lot of those functions are related. Um, so if 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 you have an athlete that can't quite get in their in, into their legs an athlete that struggles getting to their front side, I would usually transition to that similar movement in the weight room because um, right. it's, 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 it's more controllable one because their body's not moving at all, all over the place. And two, if they can feel it in a different way, it's more likely to transfer to them when the ball's coming. 
Um, so I, I use that a ton um, as far as is, is weight room and, and swing and swing mechanics. Just one other point on that too. And that's, those are, those are awesome points, Bo. I mean, I love this question because I, this is fun. This is a fun question to ask anybody who works with hitters or any strength coach, even a strength coach who doesn't work with uh, hitters at all will give you good feedback. Um, when I went to Eric Cressy's um, shoulder seminar two weeks ago, I asked him a question about hitting and he was like, you know what? I would, I would like to hear about the two hand or the one hand finish. Like what kind of, what kind of mobility you have to have? Cause I think maybe it was Miguel Cabrera that injured himself uh, on a one hand finish or he did something weird to his shoulder. And so Eric was like, he, I asked him this question, like what, what's maybe something you'd like to see from, from a hitting standpoint, because right now I'm, I'm currently trying to finish a book, um, which, which uh, I'll have out here in the future, but I'm trying to, I'm asking Eric this question and I thought it was really interesting because obviously he works with baseball people all the time, but it's not so much in a, in a hitting realm like I am. And that was, that was a huge piece of information, the one and the two hand finish and how is it different, how it's different and what kind of mobility do you need? What kind of strength do you need? Is there a preferred version? I mean, should we do both? Should we do one? Uh, It kind of made all these light bulbs go off in my head about, you know, all the, all the tree branch of questions that could come off that. So, so it's, it's kind of interesting, but I think, I think another point I'll make about, about that is, is placing guys in postures, like getting hands on with guys and getting the starting posture correct, especially in those constraint drills is like, I mean, that gives so much, that gives so much feel. Like it's so beneficial for the athlete to get hands on and actually start, start maneuvering them. And, and, uh, and, you know, if I was trying to tell someone to feel overhead shoulder flexion and kind of feel it in the lower traps as a personal trainer, as a, as a strength coach, like you're going to put your hands there. You're going to be like, are you feeling this in your lower traps? Like we don't want to feel it on top of the shoulder. We want to feel it, you know, here. And, and again, because we're managing causes and symptoms, we want to make sure we're doing a good job in the early part of the movement. So it, the, the swing is a sequence, right? So we want to do a really good job of addressing issues that come early on. And so, so yeah, using multi-joint movements, rotary stability movements, compound movements have been really beneficial in my quest to help guys with, with getting that posture through the hips, spine, and shoulders really well so that a sequence can happen correctly. You know, once you get in there, it's like, hey, dude, turn, turn left as fast as you can. Let's roll. Um, and, and then training that intent and the mentality on top of it, and you got a really good scenario there. So, Yeah, I'm going to kind of tie all that in together that we've been talking about for the last several minutes, and that's considering the biomechanics of the swing, we obviously understand you need to be strong to make adjustments, but what's the correlation between strength, mobility, and then eventually end result? Yeah, so I think what I would say about that first is we got to produce enough force to cause enough fast twitch muscle fiber recruitment. And like we were talking about the deadlift, I mean, the deadlift is one of the greatest fast twitch muscle fiber igniters in all of training when you think about it. And Franz Bosch talks a little bit about it in his book too and and kind of the sequence of muscle activation and, and and kind of the, uh, you know, the force velocity curve. And, um, but I, I really think strength provides that foundation to create a higher ceiling for speed and power. So when we build a good foundation, our, our ceiling continues to climb. And, and we're all genetically predisposed to, 
you know, to reach that ceiling if we train for it. And at a certain time, there's, you know, we're going to plateau. If you lift 550-pound dead, you know, if you have a 550-pound deadlift for two reps, and, like, that may not make you a better hitter to do 580 pounds. Like, I think we've you've kind of lost the specificity there. I think for most of the guys I work with, fitness is coordination training. Hmm. Like, for, for a ton of guys I work with between the 16 and 20-year-old range is – they're becoming more coordinated. They're learning their body and improving their ceiling. And it's just, I think that's one of the funnest ages for me to train is because that, that coordination piece is so big from fitness. I mean, they, it really can change a guy's life. I know it changed my life when I was in college, when I, uh, when I started getting into fitness and, um, I think it's such a huge component, but you know, to, to elaborate on that, we're creating super compensation when we load these patterns that are required to create force in that specific plane. Um, you know, if, if we're doing a good job working through all three planes of motion, we're also learning uh, how to, you know, improve the pattern, repeat the pattern, and create force in it. And then to answer your question on maybe how it relates to mobility, is mobility is strength and function through an optimal range of motion. So, if we're maximizing leverage at each joint, um, that functional range of motion is allowing us to better transfer and capture energy. Uh, I love the way Bleeker talks about transfer and capture energy. And uh, I think in terms of biomechanics of the swing, guys with greater force production who transfer energy in sequence, I think they correlate to having better bat speed. Um, I don't have any hard data to, to prove that, but I think that that's a pretty... I think that's a pretty obvious component in most cases. You're going to have better bat speed if you if you have better ability to get your hips to re, reach peak velocity and then start decelerating and then transfer to the thoracic spine and then the shoulders and the hand. And, and while it doesn't guarantee hitting success, I think that's kind of the, the big thing is, you know, that's a swing perspective that I'm giving you right there. And but But I think in most youth hitters, they have a deficit in bat speed. I mean... Uh, like a, a prime primary thing I see is guys just do not have an engine. And so it's the first place we start for a lot of guys. Um, sometimes I have guys who just absolutely crush baseballs and they have no feel for what to anticipate. They're literally just up there reacting and relying on athleticism, which, which will get you to a certain point. Uh, and I think is beneficial, but, uh, but in terms of bat speed, like I think most guys are lacking that. And so strength, mobility really comes into play there. So, uh, I mean, elite athletes who have speed, I think they benefit from strength and mobility in a different way. So on a different track, like guys who are already trained, they have a high training age, um, maintaining and improving mobility and strength is necessary for the recovery and durability through a season, but it may not be necessarily improving their coordination and their end result. It's just like, hey, you're already good at baseball you're already smashing baseballs all over the yard. Let's make sure that this keeps happening. I think that's the other piece of it is you got to do a good job of strengthening mobility just to maintain you doing a good job. So I think that's, that's probably the, the main thing I would say in that aspect. Yeah. yeah no. I, go ahead, Bo. Yeah. I kind of wanted to dive into something you mentioned as far as the coordination training. Um, when I got to Utah Valley, I was a strong kid. I mean, I could deadlift, bench, squat with the best of them, but I had a hard time getting into some of those awkward positions. And I think in the weight room, when I started to move into some of those, you know, single leg squats, the split squat, 
axe throws, all these different positions is when I really allowed myself to think, uh, correlate those movements to my swing. How important do you think that is to implement those maybe in the high school age as opposed to when they get to college? And and how, how do you implement some of those single limb movements? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, in your case, Bo, you probably had to kind of earn those single leg movements. Mm-hmm. Like you have to have a base of strength. You have to be able to move well in, in some of these basic compound movements um, before you start to move on. Um, we want to have some primary control, some postural control before we start adding something crazy chaotic to the mix. And so I, I guess it, in my mind, it's all about regression or progression and regression. So if I got a guy who can't do a push-up, a single push-up, I have these guys, by the way, who cannot do a single push-up who are 15 years old, um, we're going to have to do a regression there. And I think a single-leg Bulgarian split squat is the farthest component from that guy. Or mm-hmm. or maybe, a, uh, let me give you a better example. I think maybe a single-arm cable press is, is maybe the farthest thing away for that guy at that point. And, and we got to figure out how he can move his you know, move his body better, but also just get himself up off the floor. So, uh, whereas I think in in the case you're talking about, like, I, you were probably a trained athlete at that point. You probably had, done, had at least two years of training experience. And all of a sudden, you think about how much that does for your system when you have a base of strength. And all of a sudden, you you start moving into, okay, I got to produce force from one leg to the other. I got to produce force up the chain. Um, I got to rotate better. I got to rotate cleaner. I got to improve my thoracic mobility so that I can have a larger range of motion for rotation and produce speed inside there. Um, you start to understand the benefit of of some of these finer exercises. So does that answer your question correctly? Um, I think um No, yeah, you did oh, a good job. Hopefully I'm not getting too off topic there, but. I was going to say the same thing too. I, I know Jordan, me and you were talking about this and having some discussions is Bosch really dives into some of that specialized training um, and one of those things of, of using it as coordination, like you said, all resistance training, uh, when you walk around with 40 pounds, you know, of books in your backpack, it's, it's teaching you to be coordinated. It's teaching you spatial awareness. Um, you know, anytime you had any resistance walking, you know, hiking, any of these, any, any resistance period has always been teaching us coordination. And I think obviously we can see that by the kids that are usually the most athletic, you know, are the most diverse when it comes to resistance, um, and whatever resistance that might be, it might be hiking, could be playing multiple sports. It could be weight room. It could be CrossFit. It could be, you know, whatever the heck they're doing. Um, but on top of that, one thing I was going to say is one thing that I love. And I think that, that, that coordination piece and, and Bosch really dives into that is those, what are they called? They're like aqua bags. You, you, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Those like those uh, yeah, blue, yeah, blue bags sure. they come out with and, and those aqua bags, the things yeah. that I, I really want to get my hands on them. They're kind of pricey, um, but I want to yeah. get my hands on them because the coordination piece of that is you're actually going through the same movements to make it. Because just like you, you mentioned, while Bosch points out is there is a correlation between um, someone that can, you know, deadlift and, and do and produce force. But at the same time, too, it, it's not – there is a big diversity in between – let's say you have two guys that can both deadlift 500 pounds, but one has an exit velocity of – average exit velocity of 100 miles an hour, and the other guy has an average exit velocity of 81 miles an hour. While some of that force did transfer, it wasn't 
as efficient as the other one. And Bosch is interested in how we can fill that gap. And he does that really well in his book. He starts talking about, um, again, that coordination through those same exact movements that transfer over in that specialty field. And so they like those aqua bags. I really love is you have this stabilization and this ability to create force through the same movements that you're doing in baseball. So I've seen somebody put that aqua bag on their shoulders, maybe go from, um, you know, one of those like, uh, I forgot what those exact uh, jumps are called, where you start on your knees like a catcher, like you start on your knees and you jump up. Um, you know what those are called, oh, yeah. Jordan? Is there like a certain name um, for those? Well, you're talking about like a vertical jump variation, right? Like up to a box yeah. or just like up from the ground, from the knees. Yeah, yeah, from the knees. And so um, anyways, one one specific drill that I like, which is resistance training and coordination training is yeah, the – Pitcher starts on both of his knees. He has that aqua bag on his shoulders. He jumps up to a one leg, like squat, like catching himself. He's actually on a mound, jumps up, lands there, and then throws his body forward like he's pitching. And while you're there, you're teaching coordination. You're teaching, obviously, strength. Um, and again, it's very specialized, um, specialized workout that wouldn't work for every athlete for every situation. Um, but you're teaching a whole bunch right. of coordination there. And I think, again, that's. Bosch is obviously very, very way more intelligent than all of us combined, <laughs> but together, but, but with that being said, oh, yeah. I think there's a lot more to be discovered on that transferability because the same thing too. I, and I say this from experience of, like you had mentioned, me and Bo um, would deadlift around the similar weights, but he had a way different exit velocity than I did uh, when it came to that. And, you know, Bo was an all American and I wasn't. So while we might be the same strength wise, and whilst a lot of that I'm sure did transfer to the field, there's obviously a lot of variability and dynamics that we, you know, have a lot more to discover on when it comes to that on the science side of why was Bo so different from Joey and, you know, and what were the dynamics from that, even though they were similar in the weight room. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of specificity and specific transfer is, like, that is, like, if you want to talk about rabbit hole, like, the specificity component is going to be ever-changing. Um, I don't think we even have, I think we have so little research on how to truly create specific transfer. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm digging for it all the time, and it's really, really difficult to find. So, anybody who's listening, like, please email me if you know elements <laughs> that I can, that I can look on that. Cause it is really, really a tough subject and it's really hard to prove really hard to test. Um, it, it takes a long time to get uh, to correlate those things if ever. Um, so, so it's kind of, it's super interesting. And I, I think that's what we're trying to get at is, are we creating opportunities for specific transfer? And you know, Bosch's book, I mean, I have to, when I read Bosch's book, I like read the same page like three or four times. Same, so <laughs> same, <cute>. Jordan. <laughs> that's it, so funny you said oh that. I, same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's what I say. I say it's it's just chewy. It's it's like a really it's like drinking a dark dark beer. It's like you like you gotta you gotta kind of sip on this thing a little bit. So yeah. uh, that's kind of that's kind of uh, <laughs> what I think about that. But uh, but specific transfer is what it's all about. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's kind of, I think that's what questions you're asking me is, is how are we using every tool in the toolbox to create transfer? And sometimes transfer is not physical. Sometimes transfer is just mental. Sometimes it's the combination of both the neuromuscular 
components in the proprioception and and uh i think there's there's so much to be done on that end of the game that the best thing we can do as a coach is is it comes back to like know your guys like evaluate as much as you can um figure out the way they think the way they move and how you're going to make adjustments for them or how you're going to like stimulate the learning process and that's the bottom line is how are you going to stimulate uh them to get excited about getting in the weight room trying new stuff understanding there's a minimum amount of time that's required to make things work yeah you you did a great job um opening that up for us i kind of want to transition away from some of um the philosophies and more into you from the coaching side what were some of those adjustments you had to go through transitioning from player to coach from player to coach i think in in terms of like just managing personalities like that was a that was a huge like that's a huge piece is you you go from managing just yourself and knowing everything about yourself and what's probably going to trigger you to to have better performance and then you got to do that now for you know 15 to 18 different guys it it's pretty tough and there's a lot of work involved like uh i think the i'm trying to think of an example here but uh like just preparing uh like I had to learn catching. I was never a catcher. I was always a third baseman, first baseman, um, never caught. Uh, my, like, I actually have no cards left on my right knee. I just found this out. Uh, and so, like, catching was, like, it always hurt me. I didn't understand why, but it turns out my, I said, like, awful knees. Um, and so I'm trying to, like, demo some of this stuff. When I first started coaching catching at Santa Barbara City College, and you could tell, like, I don't think the players trusted that I knew what I was talking about. And that was like a really fun, uh, I shouldn't say fun. That was like eye opening. Like uh, the guys pretty much knew I didn't know what I was doing today. And so (laughs) that got me on that train of like, Oh dude, I got to know more about catching. So I like, again, I bought every book I could find. I was listening to all these podcasts and stuff like that. And, and again, I just keep getting ideas from other elements of the game. And as I transitioned from player to coach, all the different ways I could capture information, whether it was golf and tennis or strength conditioning or listening and reading some of these pitching forums um, just made me think differently about stuff and it gave me ideas. So I think another thing to, to go along with that question is when I first started coaching high school ball, I felt like I was trying to fit every hitter into the cues that I thought were best. Uh, instead of fitting the best cues for each hitter based on what they needed. And I think I started to get better at it, but it was like you you kind of have what you have, right? You have what you were coached on. And, and, you know, I had had three coaches in college, so uh, it was something different all the time. But I think the biggest takeaway I had from one of my coaches in college was I hit two home runs my freshman year, and, and this coach told me the next year, he's like, hey, man, like, all I want you to do is look for the ball up in the zone and hit it as far as you can. And I only want you to try to hit home runs. And I was like, okay, like that sounds pretty cool. Let's, let's start doing that. Cause I was always physical. I was kind of slow too. So I wasn't going to go out and steal a bunch of bases. And that was like such a big deal for me. Like that, that changed my life. I went from two home runs my freshman mm-hmm. year, maybe one or two home runs in high school. And then I hit, 12 my sophomore year and then 17 my junior year and and like all of a sudden like like those are true light bulbs like the combination of me embracing a fitness program 
and having a coach that just basically just gave me freedom. Like, dude, go out and mash. Like that was, mm-hmm. that was awesome. Like I wanted to bring that energy level to a guy. Like that was really inspiring. And that same coach like also told me that I should swing really like down and have no movement. <laughs> so <laughs> in terms of mechanics, like it didn't make a lot of sense to me. He was like trying to tell me like, Hey, let's be really, really tight and really concise. And, and, uh, but at the same time, let's also hit jacks. So it's still <laughs> funny that like what I took away, what I took away from that guy. And he's still a friend of mine. And, and, uh, I think he's a great coach too. And, and, uh, but that cue stuck with me more than anything else. He said, he, he gave me that freedom, like, dude, let's go out and mash. And so that was a, that was like towards the end of my playing career that I learned that. And it kind of, that was one thing that inspired me to coach. I thought that was awesome. And then, yeah, just those time, the time spent on non-coaching elements, uh, or, or coaching elements that are in different sports is really eye-opening. Um, like, the, like, I'm pretty sure that some of these guys out there, they must only sleep three or four hours a night. Uh, because the amount of work they get done in a small period of time, uh, like it's just absurd to me. I'm like, where where do they even find the time to 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 get ahead of all this stuff? And and so uh, I think that's what's fun about it too is just like trying to stay up and trying to get all the information I can. And and you know, two nights ago I think I slept four hours just because I end up I end up not being able to sleep because I'm reading a book and it gets you too engaged and. And, you know, the next morning is awful, but thank God for coffee. So um, it's just, it's, it's just funny. I think that's another transition is, you know, as a player, you're, you're trying to manage sleep and rest and recovery. And as a coach, like I still lift weights and I just sleep awful. Um, And I should, you know, I should listen to my own advice of getting good sleep, but there's only so much time in a day to, to, to learn and gather all this information. And and, uh, luckily it's something I'm so passionate about that it's fun you know i can uh, i can miss sleep for my babies and uh, my wife's expecting another baby here soon so it's about to hit me i'm just going to start reading all night <clears throat> while i have a crying child and uh so just this funny but uh i think that another funny thing about that is you know there's not very much money in coaching uh, especially when you're an early college coach or a young college coach and uh so you kind of have to expect to have a different job I mean, I worked as a personal trainer from 5 a.m. every morning, Monday through Friday, to about 1 p.m., and then I went to practice uh, when I was at the junior college level. Um, and then, you know, practice wraps up at 6, and then, yeah, you do it again. Um, and so I think that's the reality of, like, cutting your teeth in, in the college game and uh, or, or even in the professional game is you're probably not going to get paid super well, and there's going to be a lot of hours involved. And your players don't always see the work that you're putting in. I mean, that's another mm-hmm. point I'd make about that transition is uh, like your players show up, you know, an hour early to practice and you've already been grinding on baseball information, you know, the last, the last 12 hours or, you know, whatever you were doing and, or you're there doing field work or, or dragging the field. Like, uh, you know, you, you've already spent time trying to get the field right. And then they come out and they, throw like some trash down on it and you're like what the heck bro (laughs) and all this time like making sure this is awesome and you guys know the struggle like you you guys are all coaching too so all that effort and time you put in it doesn't always get you you can't expect a reward from it you just gotta love the process like it's just like it's just like uh it's just like being a good hitter like you're not always going to get a reward from it in fact 
four or six games in a row might suck really, really bad. And you still have to go out and kind of fake your confidence or, or, or find a love for it or see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you got to do that really well as a coach. So I think that's actually how players and coaches kind of relate is you both have skin in the game. You both are trying to get better. And, and your players will know, like, if you're trying to get better as a coach, they'll see it. They'll forgive mm-hmm. you. Um, don't be so hard on yourself. I think I was, I think I was maybe a little hard on myself. Like I needed to have this certain personality uh, that, you know, I got to be a little hard, like, no, man, just, you got to love on guys. Like you got to, you, you got to show them some, some, you know, that you're a human and, and that you're trying to grow too, and you're trying to get places. And I think they appreciate that. Yeah. That's, you know, that's so funny on a couple of things that you were mentioning. Like when you talked about the same thing, like, you know, uh, you stay up all night and you're studying this and you read, you know, for a couple hours and then you come and I'd present it to my players. Like obviously without all the noise, take all the noise away and just present them your takeaway. And they're like, huh, that's cool. And you're like, you're like, you know how many hours it took me to like figure that out? <laughs> or like, or like how many years yeah. it took? It took me 20 years to figure out that one oh, thing yeah. I just taught you. Like you don't understand, you don't appreciate it. But I mean, why would they? Cause yeah. they didn't have to go through all that to get to it. So it's funny. And I, I'm sure my coaches for years did yeah. the same thing for me. So it's, it's so funny. But um, with that being said, you know, I wanted, I wanted to one, you ask you one last question before we start wrapping up is, you know, what was that last rabbit hole idea? What was that last thing that kept kept you up at night and made you, you know, you thought on for hours, present us, present us your, your three minutes of what you pulled from it. So, you know, all that, all that hours of stress and not sleep can pay off. Right. Um, okay. So when I was in junior, when I was coaching junior college baseball, that Matt Diggs video came out when he first went to San, Sam Houston state, uh, when he just got done coaching that awesome Louisiana Lafayette team. And I was so inspired by Matt Diggs, uh, one, because he's just an amazing Christian guy. And gosh, wouldn't you want to play? Like, I want to play for Matt Diggs. Like, uh, another dude like that, um, Matt Braga at Tennessee Tech. Like, those dudes have so much energy. They are men who show emotion and who understand, like, what it means to be a coach on a higher level, uh, regardless of mechanics or philosophy. like these dudes get it. And that was so inspiring. And I'm like, I have so far to go if I want to be a division one head coach someday. And, and while maybe my goals have changed a little bit, uh, like that was so inspiring to me. And I think they gave me so many ideas. So that, that, like, that was the first time I came across what you are describing as the rabbit hole idea. And I'm like, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to take a radar gun. I'm going to go try to figure out how to get money to buy radar guns on my on my measly salary that I have here. Uh and I didn't know how I was going to do it uh, cuz all the pitchers were using the radar guns, so I had no way to track exit below. So, I was like in a perfect world, we're going to track launch angle, we're going to track exit below, we're going to I'm going to throw the radar gun out there every time we're taking BP and and I'm going to call it out. We're going to go, you know, that was 80, 84, and just let guys know about it and kind of wear them out when they suck. Like, just just get on dudes and have fun with them and and uh, make everything a competition. I just love that idea. It was like, make dudes compete. Make them go to war with each other. Um, and I think that's like, okay, that, now I got the wheel turning and, and I have kind of some ideas, and, and I did that at UNC. 
um, so that UNC had hold the radar gun behind the cage. And this is like in pregame BP, and I'd be calling out the number, and, you know, it, it kind of rewarded ground balls a little bit now that I now that I realized, you know, that, that maybe the cop radar was not the best thing. But um, And then I would throw BP, and I'd mix pitches. So I would be mixing curveballs, fastballs, like, randomly. And it, it was kind of – it was structured, um, but we were doing it pregame. And, you know, cause I was like, I want guys to, I want guys to be adjustable. I want them to experience an adversity. And so we kind of, we kind of like, we did that one day, like we did that on, on maybe like Saturday. And then if we really felt like the guys just needed some confidence, then we were going to do, you know, just, we're going to do like, Hey, two Oh count right here. Let's crush the baseball or let's drive the, you know, just have a plan for batting practice. And so that's kind of what we were doing there. And, and uh, I think, I think guys hated it sometimes because you are failing, you know, like, you you're not really it's not a high success rate it's it like the talent code talks about if you ever read that book the talent code kind of talks about that 50 to 80 percent success rate area is where you have really high learning um uh really high learning power and uh and so i wanted guys to get out of the 80 percent plus success rate stuff and get into that more and I felt like because our practice time was limited during the week, sometimes, and especially with snow in Colorado, like we didn't always get that time on the field that I wanted. And so some, like it kind of leaked into the, to the season itself. Like we were still trying to teach guys stuff through the season. And so, um, so yeah, so that was kind of like, that was a rabbit hole idea that I'd had. Like, and I, and I love talking about that stuff with guys, um, but the players, they really, they really like just taking free swings. Like they like to just feel good. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about feel good. It's all about feel good. And it just seems like there's so much of baseball that's wrapped up in, Hey, let's do things at a high success rate. And then because you're confident, like, you're now going to be awesome in a game. But so we're putting a little too much emphasis on the confidence piece and not quite enough on the development piece at that point. And so I think that's where hitting kind of maybe has, has lost its, you know, maybe at the professional level, it's kind of lost that development piece is we just do too much that's too easy. We do too much that's just not game-like. Um, and I don't think this is a new new idea by any means. I'm, I'm kind of taking you back five years and, and thinking, you know, I was starting to do this, and I think the players probably thought I was a little crazy because, like, this guy's trying to change the game here. Like, let's just take our BP and move on and and let me be confident. And I totally agree with that. Like I would have been, I would have been mad as a player too. Like, dude, I finally get to take BP and you're making me get out of the cage every time I had a pop-up. Like, uh, like, let me, let me just hit. We don't hit enough. So, uh, so I really felt that traditional batting practice has some occasional merit, but definitely not daily merit. Um, and, and aside from like having a live hired arm, so, I know, I know in, in Japan, they have like a live hired arm during batting practice, mixed pitches. They're doing all sorts of different stuff. And I can't think of a better way to prepare for a game than taking 15 at bats before you go hit. Uh, that seems very logical to me. And while you don't always feel good, you might actually feel worse. Um, I'm thinking back, I hit I, my junior year. Uh, I don't mean to brag here. This is division two baseball. I was, I was seeing some probably average pitching on this day, but I hit three home runs in the game twice my junior year. And those days I vividly, you know how, when you have a good day, you have a really good day and you remember everything about that day. 
and it's like you're watching yourself from a video camera from above. Like you just kind of remember the sights and the sounds and what you were thinking. I took the worst batting practice both those days. Like it was, it was awful. And they were the two best games of my life looking back. And I just remember I felt terrible. Like the days before I felt batting practice went really, really poorly the day of. So there's gotta be, there's got to be low correlation between batting practice, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's that's a huge topic. And I know Jason Ochar was talking about this, but he he believes that by maybe 2030, it was is what he maybe said is that traditional BP will just be a complete thing of the past. And um, I don't know if it's that bold. Um, I think as much as we're learning right now, I think traditional BP traditional BP just continues to show us that we're doing kind of a disservice to players and from the development aspect, I mean, what are we, what are we offering our players by doing a perceived velocity of 65 miles an hour consistently? Um, There's just no decision-making that has to come from that. There's, there's even a visual component that is totally different. I mean, your eyes don't, they're not working the same when you're seeing slow baseballs, like you're having, you're not perceiving things the same. So from a, a visual motor perspective, like, it's also way off. Um, and I, and not to say that I'm like, a, I'm not a huge hater of BP. Like I'm, I love traditional BP and going to smash jacks as much as the next guy. Like, let's do that every day. That sounds really awesome. And I love hitting nukes and, but it doesn't really develop guys. So I think one more rabbit hole perspective on that is are, are we going to start seeing pre-game rap soto, pre-game track man. Like, is it going to be like golf? Like in, in golf, they use the track man. Like, like all the best coaches are using track man. They got to set up right next to the guy. Like, are we, are we using that to be more precise? Like how is the technology going to change? Um, how are we going to start tracking data? Like, it, uh, I hope I'm making sense here, but what are we, like, what are we, what's the next phase of, of this technology piece? No, yeah, I think that you touched on a lot of great points that are very applicable in today's games. I think Joey and I are going to have to go back and replay and, and take notes on a lot of this information you're opening up. Um, if any of our listeners have any questions of what you've talked about, I uh, want to reach out to you, uh, any inquiries, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, um, on Twitter, uh, it's at Hitting for Power. Uh, so at Hitting for Power on Twitter, um, rounding third BP, so rounding third baseball performance, but rounding third BP is on Instagram. You can reach me um, by email, Jordan Stoffer at gmail.com. J-O-R-D-A-N-S-T-O-U-F-F-E-R at gmail.com. And you can also reach me through my website at rounding3.com. But yeah, any anybody who wants to, uh, to reach out, love talking, love growing, uh, if you think I'm crazy, let's talk about it. Let's do this. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I, I, I love, I love it. I love training athletes. I just want to do a good job where my feet are right now and whatever the future holds and then great. But, but yeah, man, that's awesome. Jordan, thank you so much for diving in with us for, you know, a, an action packed take note, favorite notes, notes episode of just, how many different bullet points and things, you know, you, you've given, I'm sure a lot of our listener rabbit hole ideas of themselves. So you, you've lost sleep for the whole coaching community now. So uh, anyways, uh, appreciate you jumping on with us and 
um, taking some time to give back to the game. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Jordan. Man, I don't know how many pages you guys used on your notepad, but I'm going to have a lot. This call's takeaway is brought to you by Quality at Bats. Don't forget to visit qualityatbats.com to further your mental approach to the game. Yeah, talk about information overload, so much stuff to take away from. What was your biggest call takeaway, Joey? I think with him, and every time I talk to a lot of people that are just their heart and souls into this is, you know, I'm I'm constantly more and more, as I've learned, I'm, I'm it humbles me a lot to talk to people like Jordan and listen to guys like Jason from Driveline and things like that. And just some of these guys, you know, everybody dedicates their heart to it. And there's just so much to learn about the game. I think when, you know, I was a little bit younger and still constantly need to check myself is that you always feel like, you know, you got a good grasp on this game. You've been playing it for so long. You've, you know, you've developed a couple of guys. So, so this things are work for this guy. This stuff worked for this guy. And I think my biggest takeaway from all that is just, you know, how much time it takes to be a master at something. And even when you are, I mean, there's so many things in the game that we still need to learn. And I think that I constantly have just been getting checked lately as I've learned from some of these guys that are really a lot, very, 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 very high level guys that are a lot smarter than I am. Um, just continually humming, humbling myself and just, just putting my head down, head down, eyes forward and just keep learning. Um, but that was my biggest call takeaway. What, what about you, Bo? Yeah, I love that growth mindset. Um, for me, I think the biggest thing I took away um, from the player's perspective is you can never underestimate the importance of weight training and weightlifting and how those movements are functional um, through the game of baseball, whether it's pitching, hitting. You can never underestimate that. And that also calls for us as coaches to understand the importance of those movements and how to correlate those into weight training programs and how to make that translate onto the field. Um, so, so that was kind of my biggest takeaway there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big thing. Uh, you know, it just, again, the science going into how things transfer and that positive transfer is, you know, we just don't have enough, you know, and, and um, we've definitely made great progress. Um, but it's something that's been studied a lot more in the last couple of years. So I'm so I'm interested in where that's going to go here in the next couple of years with that as well. Um, absolutely. Yeah, no, guys, again, this episode, again, we 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 did this one in, intentionally we weren't going to cut Jordan off. We, we let him have the reins. I told Bo, I said, Hey, this one, this one might be a long one. We might have to keep letting this guy talk. Cause I'm not going to, you know, he just shared so much great information and gave us some applicable points and how we can apply those to our practices. And, you know, some things that we need to think about kind of moving forward and how we can continue to stress ourselves to get better um, and continue to grow the game and just be the best resource possible for our kids and our, you know, other coaches too, as well. So great episode to share. Um, great you know, growth in this episode, you can, you can share this with guys that are, you know, maybe looking to that private sector or guys that are in a private sector that need a perspective of, you know, maybe the other side or, you know, either or, but a great episode to share that way. Again, the golden rule of podcasting and we love you guys the most is uh, rating this podcast. Also to leaving a comment for us, reaching out to us on social media, sharing things on social media, all of those things are great things. It helps other coaches find us. It helps other coaches get better. And at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. That's, I mean, that's the point of this podcast is just trying to help and be that bridge so that we can all get better. But until next time, farm system out. Ah.